11, Revelation 17, John 12, John 13, Proverbs 6, Matthew 12, and actually 1 Corinthians. Well, I'm going to slide it in here a little bit on you, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4. I don't want you to know that we're doing it, so please don't tell your neighbor who's already fast asleep. Okay. All of those, and like I said, uh, some other essential passages thrown in as we wonder about. What are we doing? We're searching for the key pieces, the, the, the evidence that solves, if you will, the clues that solve the eighth mystery, and probably I shouldn't say solve, solves a little strong. We're not going to solve it, um, because solve seems to uh, erase all doubt. We're going to be shooting for beyond a reasonable doubt here. A much lower threshold, but nevertheless a very high achievement. We want to be certain beyond a reasonable doubt that we have solved the eighth mystery. Um, and that's, like I said, very high achievement with respect to biblical scholarship and comprehension. If you can get to beyond a reasonable doubt, you have done very, very well. So our goal is to accomplish what is possible for us as an investigator. What aren't we? We're not an eyewitness. We have to read and study and figure out and look at the clues. We're not going to get it as an eyewitness. Someday we're going to know for absolute certain. When's that? Someday we get to see the videotape, so to speak, or the TiVo of all of this. It's rushed to the... See, people have snuck back and they're now eating the peanuts. Did you know that? That's what they're doing. Look at them. Grab a handful of peanuts on the way by. No one catches them. If we put M&Ms in the peanuts, what would happen? Nobody would be in here right now. They'd all be doing that. Did I tell you you were dismissed, young lady? There's no kid? So you're stuck here with me? Does your guest know that? Did you, did you tell your guest that says she was going to be stuck here with me? Did, you, did she warn you about this lecture at all? That's okay. <laughs> That's cool. We are really glad to have suckered you here. <laughs> no kids. You must be doing a terrible job. Yeah. Oh. Maybe you ought to try something like, say, chocolate. Do you? Okay, that's not working. Where was I? Okay. We are not going to know for absolute certain while we are here. All we are here is investigators and students, but we're going to know. We're going to sit in front of a high court. We're going to have the Lord God, Jesus Christ, presiding over the trial, if you will, sitting on the great white throne of judgment. And that's the day that all these things are going to be revealed. And that's an unimaginable experience. We can't imagine what that's going to be like. We really can't. But we're going to know things that are unknowable to us now. But until then, we're commanded. Let me say it better. We are required and commanded to search, to reason, to figure out what we've been given. He wants us to figure this out. He demands that we do. He commands that we do. Uh, we are the stewards of the mysteries of God, and this is the eighth mystery. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. That's John 5, 39. That's Hebrews 6, 14. Figure it out. Search the scripture. Work, reason, discern, discover what is, what is good, what is evil. Be a steward of it. Someday, all of us, as you know, are going to be held accountable we're all going to be held accountable for what we know about the mysteries. At least be able to say, hey, there's 11 of them. At least do that. How many are there? There's 11, yay. What are the 11? Can you name them? You are going to be held accountable for your knowledge of them and how much of them you have given to whom? Your children. Your parents. So the better question is, do, if you're a child, which means that you are below the age of 45, okay, 43, do you know these? If you don't know them, who gets the beating? Your parents do. If your kids don't know them, you get a beating. At least have the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? God adding humanity. What is the eighth mystery? 
the man of sin. So there's two. Get that. What's the ninth mystery? That's the harlot of the man of sin, right? That's, that's three that you should be able to have. But there are eleven. Some will argue. I think eleven is mostly correct. So if you get to the eighth position, you'll be fine. But uh, you'll still have to know eleven of them. But you're going to be held accountable. We all are. Be a steward found faithful. And that's uh, exactly what this eighth mystery, by the way, causes us to confront. Uh, knowing good from evil. Discerning good from evil. Be a steward found faithful. Be able to discern good from evil. Be a mature person, and that's what we're doing right now, because this is the mystery of evil. It is the evil. I can't put that on the board enough. It is not an evil, just another evil. It isn't. It is the evil. The eighth mystery is the lie, the evil, the false, that which is defined by all other lies, all other evil, and all other falsehoods. And we're supposed to compare the evil with the good, right? That's what this is. This is the evil versus the good. And so we have to know what is absolute goodness, and then we have to know what is absolute evil, and then we can compare them together. And that is where, we're, where we are today. The counterfeit against the genuine, and that's led us, as I said, to where we are, working our way through the descriptions of who? Judas. If you don't take on the evil, the lie, the counterfeit, the false, without talking about Judas, who is called by God himself, of no one else is it said, of no one else has it ever been said by God himself that they are the son of perdition. Not a son of perdition, the son of perdition, the devil and that man. That's what Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, said about the person of Judas. He's also called a thief by John and a guide in Acts. Acts 1. So, Judas has those five descriptions. The son of perdition, the devil, that man, a thief, a guide. And so we asked last week um, what all those mean. And specifically I asked last week, um, he's called a thief. So what's the obvious question? If he's a thief and you're an investigator, you have your badge... What do you do? What did he steal? What, what did he take? And then the other question becomes, who did he take it from? And then what's the third question? Yeah, for what purpose? He's got it. What's he going to do with it? Where did he keep it? Or did he keep it? Did he take it and use it for something? What's he doing? What's, what's the context and the, and the totality of his crime? And then I asked, uh, he's a guide. He's called a thief and a guide. Obvious question again. Who did he guide? Where was he taking them? What's the key question all of that? Look, if I hire a guide and he's going to take me somewhere uh, through a jungle to do something, maybe hunt, I can get a big game guide to take me somewhere in the wilderness and I'm halfway into this guiding trip. I have a very interesting story, I should tell you this, about my sister. My sister used to take uh, pictures and she was the trainer for the UAA women's basketball team and she would go to the downtown city gym and take photographs. And she ran into a man and this man wanted to take her on a picture taking Guide. He wanted to guide her, put her in an airplane and fly her over Whittier because he talked to her and found out that she, uh, her family was from Whittier, though she wasn't. She had never really seen Whittier, but we, we, Brian and I grew up there. And this man found her downtown at the, at the city gym where people, athletes used to congregate, taking pictures of summer league games with her cameras and she's very interested in photography, very good photographer and um, told her he would take her on a guided trip, fly her over Whittier, and that man was Bob Hanson. Yeah, Bob the Butcher Hanson, a serial killer who killed as many as 30 women up here. He would drop them off on the sandbar and land his plane and hunt them down with a bow and arrow. He was a brutal, brutal killer. That was the guide. 
That I bring to you because that is the guide that is Judas. Judas is the guide. He is doing the same thing. He is guiding people for the purpose of what? By the way, how did they catch Bob Hansen? Bob Hansen would call my sister almost every other day on the phone, trying to get her to go. And she really wanted to go because he was going to pay her to take pictures, but somebody stopped her, stopped him. Does my, your, your father ever told you this story? Wow. Somebody stopped him. My mother, who was on, in pre-onset Alzheimer's and completely crazy, almost impossible to talk to her, but she knew that Bob Hansen was an evil man. And he, she just screamed at him on the phone, absolutely screamed at him, called the police, did everything she could to torment this man. And, and looking back at it, of all the people he could have run into, he ran into my mother. And that just fascinates me. He had no idea what this, this lady, he, he couldn't have known. As evil as he was, he couldn't have known he ran into somebody who was suffering from Alzheimer's, essentially. And Alzheimer's goes through phases. You start out with a really nasty phase, and then you end up in the happy phase. And she was in the really nasty phase. And she let this murderous animal, and if you want to find out something, you want to find out something about evil, study Bob Anson, the butcher baker of Anchorage. He owned a bakery, a donut. And so the police, um, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. Susie was one of his, he intended to, to kill her, hunt her down like an animal and shoot her with his bow and arrow. He was an elder, by the way, or a deacon at least in a church here in town. Be very suspicious of elders and deacons. Very suspicious. Anyway, someday I'll tell you more about that story, but I'm fascinated by how my mother stopped him and just drove my sister crazy because it was an opportunity for her to make money. My whole point in all of that, though, is that Judas is this kind of guide. Who is he guiding? Who is he going to get? He's going to bring a whole bunch of people. Is he going to be, is he guide them to Disneyland? No, where's he taking them? Let's make the comparison. He's taking them where? What's the look? He's doing exactly the same as the Nazi Holocaust, isn't he? He's gathering up Jews. He's going to bring them to the destruction. That's what his plan is. He brings them to Gethsemane as a guide because he assumes what? What's he think going to happen to them? Does he really think he's going to succeed in taking down the Lord God Almighty? A man, he doesn't necessarily know that's God in the flesh, but he knows that Christ can walk through people. So what does he intend? And by the way, where's the compliment to Gethsemane in the Scripture? It's in Revelation 19, where who does what? The Antichrist does what in Revelation 19? He brings as many people as he can possibly get and brings them to the valley and what we call Armageddon. For what purpose? to confront the Lord God. That's what he's doing. What does he expect them to do? Succeed? They all think they're going to succeed. It's one of the great deceptions of the Antichrist, of the guide. So find the relationships, by the way. Obviously, <coughs> excuse me, the way we proceed in solving all these kinds of questions and other questions is compare Scripture with, with Scripture. Just as I did. I took Gethsemane and compared it to Revelation 19. That's how you solve things. And probably I ought to read that to you today so that you know. I'm actually sneaking something in on you right now that you probably don't know. And this is a trick. But it'll be good for you. You will like it. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. And see if, you, as I read it to you or as you read along, why you think I'm bringing it up with respect to Judas. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God. Recognize that immediately. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for, they, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what are we talking about here? The mysteries. You're supposed to know the mysteries. 
If you know the mysteries, you have wisdom. For as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us, the mysteries to us, through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. My goal for you is not to have a shallow understanding of your faith. My goal for you is what? To know the deep things of God, to have wisdom, to know the mysteries. If you know the mysteries, you'll make it through this life, and what will happen then? Yes, I'll get credit for you. That's only half a joke. I get a beating for you if I don't teach you. If you I, I'm, Don't stand next to me, because I'm going to get a whipping up there. There's many people that have come through my classes that I, had, I had, didn't help. I get a beating for them. I get a skittle for each of you. But you have to know the deep things of God. You have to. It's so important to your kids. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The mysteries, the deep things, are the real deep things, not the phony deep things you see at all these... Oh, God, it just makes me so angry. I don't know what to say. These phonies that get up and steal your money pretending to do things that are spiritual. It's just a con game. You can see it all over Vegas. It's just ridiculous. The real deep things, the real mysteries. You want to find somebody that's got wisdom, somebody who's pretending to have power? Go up and ask them to explain the deep mysteries of God. Ask them to explain to you the 11 mysteries. I guarantee you they don't know one. They're a con man. They don't invite me. They did once. They wanted me to sing in their choir, Sullivan Arena. They never asked or called again. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing Spiritual things with spiritual. Comparing scripture with scripture. That's how you learn the deep things. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually taught or spiritually discerned. You learn the deep things of God from him, from his Holy Spirit. That's why you pray and meditate over your Bible so that he'll teach you the deep things, the, the wisdom that he has for you. But he who is spiritual judges all things. What he means by that is you test all things. You just don't fall for stuff. You're the wisest. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I want to go to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, so you'll see this part again, so you'll know where it is. I want you to look at it and read it. Why am I doing that? So you're guilty. Be prepared to be guilty. Any excuse you might have in front of the throne saying, I don't know that. He's going away here in five seconds. Here you go. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You are to be a steward of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. There you go. We are called to study, to understand, to know the deep things of God, the mysteries, to compare the spiritual with the spiritual, the scripture with scripture. These deep things are the mysteries. They are the thoughts of the Lord. They are the hidden wisdom taught to the saved by the Holy Spirit, to believers in Christ, by and through the Holy Spirit. So we should be, and we have to be, and we must be obedient to this. And what does that mean? That means show up, care, try. Do you notice verse 8, by the way? I slipped that in. Let me read it again. Let me start back here at 6. The rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
Now we'll go to 8. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. So none of the rulers of this age knew the mystery of the incarnation of God, that he would come as a human being. None of them knew that. Nobody knew that. That was a mystery. What's called the uh, miracle or the mystery of godliness. None of them knew that. None of the rulers of this age. So what's your obvious question? Who are the rulers of that age? What age is it? Who's running it? They didn't know the mystery of godliness. They did not know that Christ was who? God didn't know it. The rulers didn't know it. That's only taught by who? The Holy Spirit. If you know that, that's only taught by the Holy Spirit. By the way, Christ says, John 8, 24, I hope. You must believe I am. You must believe that he is the I am. Or you will perish. Have that ready for the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons when they come. Which none of the rulers of this age knew... For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I want you to think about that. That's a complex, very, very complex little verse hidden in there. Many questions. Who are the rulers of the age? What age is it? Let me ask you this one. You can answer this one. Are the rulers good or bad? Hmm? Good or bad? Bad. How do you know that? It says they're going to come to nothing. Rulers are bad. If the bad rulers had known that that was God, and they could not have known that, by the way, how come they could not have known it? Because it's only taught by the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit, so they could not have known it. But if, they, they could not have known it because they are evil, but if they had known it, they would not have unwittingly, unwittingly participated in the crucifixion. By the way, this is why he quotes Father why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. He quotes Psalm 22 to them, not because he's being forsaken by the Father, but because they figure out that they unwittingly are participating in the Psalm 22 prophecy as the what? As the evil people. That's not good news. If you find yourself in what's called a theotic, uh, uh, um, um, a dramatic theodicy, and you're in the role of the evil person, get out of there. And that's what was happening to them. Some of them figured it out and beat their breasts and mourned for what they were doing. But that's why Psalm 22 is there, because they are unwittingly participating in the crucifixion. Christ crucified is a stumbling block, First uh, Corinthians 22, or 122 through 23. Christ being crucified, people don't understand it. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. So think, remember that, stumbling block and foolishness. Now, let's try this again. Obvious question. Had they known, and they couldn't have known, because they are evil, and they can't be taught, because the Holy Spirit teaches only the say, but grant me the hypothetical just for fun. Had they known, and they couldn't have known, had they known, what would they have done? Had they known this was God in the flesh, what would they have done? Think like evil people. That should be pretty easy for all of us. Ask, would they have continued with the crucifixion? They're evil people. They know this is God. Would they have continued it? What does Christ crucified accomplish, by the way? And so you know, circumcision is a type, a symbol of Christ crucified. When you get into the Old Testament and you study Moses and Zipporah in Exodus and the crucifixion of the son uh, of the sons of Moses, that is a picture of Christ crucified. The doctrine of Christ being crucified is being pictured there. What did Christ crucified accomplish? Remember, the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They can't even to this day understand why Christ is crucified. What did Christ crucified accomplish? 
That's right. Glory to God, first and foremost. It is glory to God. Secondly, it is the solution to sin. It is salvation. He is the accepted sacrifice. Would the evil rulers of that day, had they known that this was God and He intended to be crucified, would they have participated in it and allowed people to be saved? Would the brood of vipers have wanted Christ to be crucified if they knew who he was, that he is God, that he is the I Am, and that his goal was to be crucified? Would they have participated in it? They couldn't have known. I think you have to conclude that they would have done everything they could to have stopped it. They would have done everything they would have done, to, uh, they could have, to stop the crucifixion. Because if he is crucified, then we have what? We have glory for him and we have salvation for us. He's the accepted sacrifice, the solution to sin, the payment made. They would want to stop the payment. Why do they want? Who is he paying for, by the way? Us. What price is he paying? If he doesn't pay the price, what happens to us? We're condemned. Do the brood of vipers, do the rulers of the age want us saved? Want anybody saved? Does Satan want anybody saved? Judas want anybody saved? Why is Judas participating in something that will lead to salvation and to glory, or glory and to salvation? I have to say that in the right order. Now that reads the next question. Did anyone evil attempt to stop the crucifixion? What's the answer to that? Anyone evil attempt to stop the crucifixion? Pilate wasn't really interested in doing it, was it? Because he had his wife going, hey, this ain't good, baby. Get out of here. Anybody else evil? We don't know if he was evil. By the, uh, the article volume, which is a fairly ancient book, proclaims that Pilate is a saved man. I hope he is. He, was, he had a great sense of humor, if nothing else. So I hope he made it. I'm pretty sure his wife made it. Another lesson. If you're about to crucify God, listen to your wife. Okay. Anybody else? Let's, if somebody really evil say, wait a minute. I don't want this to happen. Who that? Judas. Judas attempted to stop the crucifixion in me. That's very important. With, with Satan inside of him, he tries to stop the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Go. That's a very good question. I think not. I think Corinthians tells us that he didn't know that he was God at the time that he attempted to stop the crucifixion. But something happened where Judas said, this is not what I thought was going to happen. And he instinctively, being with the wisdom that Satan has given him and that he had on his own, frankly, the most evil of all, seeing this upcoming crucifixion, comes and attempts to disrupt the, the trial, to stop it. Once he sees, Matthew 27, 3, says this, Judas, seeing that he had been condemned. Uh-oh. I can't, I, that ain't what I was expecting. Satan is inside of him. He is not going, oh no, I'm a bad person. He's not doing that. Satan is inside of him. This is a extraordinarily wicked, evil, cunning man. Very powerful, very wise, and he tries to stop the crucifixion. Obvious question? Why? Does he know it's God? Goes against Corinthians. But he knows it didn't go. He did not expect Christ to do what? He knows something about Christ that nobody else knows, frankly. Because Christ is able to look at Satan and go, depart. How much power does that take? That's a lot of power. Judas knows that this is a very powerful person. Does he know it's God himself? No, I don't believe he does. But he knows it's a very powerful person. And he goes out and gathers a whole bunch of what? Idiots. And brings them in front of Christ and goes, get him! There he is, arrest him! Idiots. That's what's going on. Judas and Satan obviously expected something else. They did not expect Christ. The first Christ says, I am, and they all do what? Whap into the mud. Going good. So far, so good. That's what he expected. 
But he knew something. He knew that he got to be on a white horse, by the way. I'll explain that next week. But he knew we have that outline, that, that, uh, that revelation of his ministry, if you will. I'll get to that in a minute. But they did not expect anybody to get up out of the mud. They thought the final conflict, if you will, was going to begin. They didn't know how long it would go. I assume that they had some information because of Daniel. They had some idea of what was going to go. But they did not expect the, the they did not expect Christ to surrender, which is what he did. They expected condemnation for mankind, I believe here. They expect Israel to be tried and executed. Never did Judas Satan expect Christ crucified, Christ sacrificed, Christ as substitute. They were caught under unawares, surprised and shocked. And then they adjust on the fly. However, all of that is going to come in lessons ahead. For today, I'm going to try to keep on task. I want to get over, get, get us through this son of perdition, the devil, that man, thief and guide, the uh, uh, description of Judas. Now, from last Sunday, from Revelation 6, the four horsemen, called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, after a football team in Notre Dame. But called the four horsemen of the apocalypse very commonly today. And I submit that they, as I said last week, that's best explained as four stages, four phases of the Antichrist destructive work. As I said, the ministry of the Antichrist, if you will. The white horse, that's the peace king posing as the Christ. Uh, Antichrist's name means both uh, instead of and opposed to. And so his, the first phase, if you will, of his ministry is that he is the instead of Christ. He comes and pretends to be the Christ. That is in his actual definition of his name. And the red horse, that tells you that he's going to go from pretending to be the Christ, pretending to come in peace and healing and mercy and goodness, intending uh, after that he's going to begin uh, causing world war. And the Antichrist causes violent worldwide war. That's the red horse. And that's followed by the black horse, the food controller. No one buys and sells. He's got total control of the food. I brought up the Holodomor of the Ukrainian uh, genocidic famine. The same thing is what the Antichrist is going to do, but he's going to do it worldwide. He'll control the food as the anti-Joseph. Instead of feeding the world, he's going to hide the food and, and, and cause everyone to die of starvation, as many as he can kill. That is the black horse of the famine. And then the revelation of who the Antichrist is, is the pale horse. Now the pale horse means what? What's it mean? What's the pale horse? Anybody know? What color is pale? What's that? Well, I agree with that, but the pale horse is the ashen horse. It is the decomposed green body color. That's what it is. It is the pale horse, if you will. He's riding a decomposing horse. It smells. It's pale green. And this is death by plague. Remember, he's going to destroy the Gentiles and he's going to destroy the Jews. And this one is disease. I, I think it's going to be poison. Some have suggested biological war, but I think it's going to be more personal than that. I think it's going to be poison. He's going to kill people with poison. I've often wondered how the Antichrist, he kills 25% of everybody that's alive, I think, by today's reckoning, he's going to take out 20 or 2 billion people. They're going to get sick by poison, you know, poison them. And I wondered, obviously, how's he going to get the poison in? First thing that came to mind was Kool-Aid. They probably wouldn't want me to say that. But he, I, I just wonder... You know, has he got a fake communion service where everybody drinks his poison and dies? Has that been done? Oh, yeah. Jim Jones and Guyana, right? Will people be so stupid that they'll drink poison? Duh. Duh, they will. They eat broccoli. It's not that hard to imagine. Anyway. 
Many of you begin as you should. You came up to me. It's really great. You began to assign different events to each horse or stage. Obviously, the Judas-Satan, when they've combined, um, they thought, they surmised that the white horse stage was about to begin. This is where they come as the loving, peaceful person that is in the instead of Christ. And they are the, they're going to be the, they're posing as the savior of the world. So they have to convince people that the real Christ is not. They have to convince people that that's the Antichrist. Did the Pharisees in any place accuse Christ of being Satan? Yeah, Matthew 12. So clearly that's what we're going to do. We're going to accuse Christ of being Satan and we're going to pose as the real Christ and we're very powerful. Is that what he's going to do, by the way, when he's here on earth? He's going to declare himself to be the Christ? Yeah. Everybody going to believe him? Everybody going to believe him? Well, if you won't, what will happen to them? Beheaded, yeah. That's why I have that rapture position. As I told you many times, I believe that God is going to reward you with the doctrine that you have. In other words, if you believe in the rapture, he's going to rapture you. And if you don't, he'll leave you here to be beheaded. That's how I see it. <laughs> That's mostly for the people that listen to me on CD or iTunes, whatever that is. Anyway, they can't tell I'm kidding so they'll write me little nasty messages. It'll be great. I'll tell them my name. Bill Fast. Give them my address. Anyway. Many of you, as you should, began to assign things that Judas and Satan did. They thought it was going to begin. They're mistaken about that, of course. But many of their actions were designed for their plan. They're now, we know it's revealed now. We can read it in Revelation. Look there. There goes the black horse. Don't eat anything. I'm serious. You see it go by? I'm serious. Did anybody see the horse? Thank you. Thank you for not paying attention to the sermon. Yes. Looking out the window at the horse. Never raise your hand in this class. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, for those of you who make it fun of he's awake. He saw the horse. Okay. That's that's you know, all I ask here is try to stay awake through the lecture so that you can get to the buffet on time. If you're sleeping, it'll be gone before you wake up. We won't wake you. Okay, look at what he did. The kiss greeting, for example, in Gethsemane, that fits into the white horse. The throwing of the silver fits into the white horse. The money box for the poor fits into the white horse. The hanging over the potter's field of blood, a very mysterious act that he did, fits into the white horse. I pointed out, to, well, I'll identify her by name. Misty came up and asked me, Yay, Misty, hardly been here but once or twice, comes up and asks me a really good question for this week's sermon in the sense that this is where we were headed, and she did it all by herself. You should all be proud of her, especially her husband who saw the horse. Anyway, I pointed out to Misty that the Gethsemane kiss corresponds to something. Okay, I told her, so she can't answer, but the Gethsemane kiss has a, it fits so beautifully with something that is Judas. With Satan inside of him, kisses Christ in Gethsemane. You ever want to know why he did that? That's an evil, wicked, cunning man. He kisses Christ. That fits so wonderfully as a glove with something that Christ did. It corresponds. You would expect that, right? The Antichrist does something, then the Christ has also done something that they can, they can contrast with. One's a counterfeit, the other's the true thing. What true thing corresponds? What did Christ do that corresponds to the kiss? It's the piece of bread. It's the piece of bread. You see, the counterfeit, the reciprocal, the inverse, to put it in mathematical terms, I want you to notice the similarities between them. They are startling. Jesus Christ, the I Am, the Word made flesh, gives to Judas the first piece of bread from the Passover meal. And he did it, he put it, he gave it to him because that's the piece that honors the guest of honor, if you will. Judas was the guest of honor at the Passover meal, and he gets the first piece of bread. So Christ gave it to him to honor him and to declare their great friendship that they had and to declare and to demonstrate the love that Christ has for Judas. 
That's the purpose, that's the symbol of that first piece of bread, as you know. But also the first piece of bread was a something else. What was it? It was a, yeah, it was a signal. Who wanted to know? Peter. He gonna shoot him dead, man. But he didn't get the signal. It's not only a, a demonstration of love and friendship and honor, but it's also a signal to Peter and John. It's given to identify Judas as the son of perdition, as the lie. Frankly, as I, as I, I hope you recognize my position, it's to identify Judas as the Antichrist. Now, compare Scripture with Scripture, as we're to do, as Corinthians says. The kiss of Judas is a what? It is an act of honor. It is an act of love. It is an act of friendship. And it is also to do what? To identify Jesus as the what? As the Christ. And it's also a what? A signal to do what? Seize him. Now, did Judas ever think anybody's going to seize this guy? You've got to be kidding me. Get him, idiot. But they're identical, aren't they? See, it's used to identify Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God versus the Son of Perdition, as the as God the Son versus the spawn of Satan or the seed of Satan, as the truth as opposed to the lie, the signal to those being guided by Judas who attempt to seize Christ. The relationship between the first piece of bread and the Gethsemane kiss is extraordinary. It's unmistakable. Don't ever forget it. It opens up so much information to you as an investigator. Now, however, the... Judas Satan's kiss is completely a lie. It's completely a lie. One is totally true. It's totally true that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, loves, honors Judas. Totally true. Weeps over him. Also identifies him as the son of perdition, the son of Satan. Okay? But Judas's and Satan's kiss is completely a lie. You should expect that. It's both a lie and it's a deception. But I think it's best described as ridicule as mimicry, as mocking, as a parody. Judas and Satan are doing this almost as a taunt, as a joke, in my view. There is no honor here. There is no friendship. There is no love. The signal to those that Judas guided that he led to the Gethsemane, that signal is a deception. He intends for them to go where? To, a, to their death, to condemnation. That's his plan. That's what he's hoping. Seize him. You just can't be serious about that. That's, this is the Lord God Almighty. Judas, as I said, didn't figure that out. Again, First Corinthians. But he had to know that Christ was more powerful than he and Satan. See Matthew 4. Right? Judas, Satan, they knew that puny humanity couldn't seize them. So how in the world is puny humanity going to get this guy? So their seize him is a joke. I don't want to get sidetracked with that, but next week we'll talk about the ridicule. I want you to note that Jesus Christ's first piece of bread was truth. It revealed his love. It revealed his character. It revealed his person. It revealed the truth about the person and character of Judas, where Judas's kiss was derision, was contempt. Because I believe that Satan, and therefore Judas, view God's love as a mistake, as weakness. They think God's love can be used against him. They think that's something that he shouldn't have in this sense, that they see his grace as foolishness. Again, back to Corinthians, uh, to the Greeks, foolishness. People see God's love as foolishness. They see his grace, his sacrifice, his crucifixion, Christ crucified as dumb. Why would God ever do that? That's clearly the satanic view because I, I see it now in the world view. It's a stumbling block to everyone other than the saved. Judas and Satan had a plan at its core attempts to attack the love of God. They're counting on the love of God being unjust. That's what they're counting on. Okay, perhaps that will help somewhat for those who have seen the outline of Judas's destructive work, the four horse outline pattern and are struggling with the motive, because Misty asked me a very good question. Yay for Misty. Misty gets an A. She asked me a very good question. I can see how and what he's doing. 
but I can't figure out why he's doing it. The, the, the how and the what is completely revealed in Scripture for us now. You've got to understand the why, the motive. It's a little bit more difficult to grasp completely. Okay, let's finish this with the description of Judas the thief. John 12:6, which, as usual, is very, very complicated, especially when you add Acts 1:18. Nobody ever adds one, Acts 1:16 through 18, but that's the two very, very important things. Let me read that to you really fast so that you get that hammered in. And remember, your job. I don't want you to be Inspector Clouseau, right? I want you to be Sherlock Holmes. I want you to luck into things. I want you to figure them out. Here's a very important clue. Acts 1, 16 through 18 and how it fits with John 12, 6. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David talked about Judas. That's Peter saying that. Does Peter know that David talked about Judas? Yeah. Did you know that David talked about Judas? He did. Where? The obvious question. Lots of places. You need to know where David, the Psalms, talked about Judas. David understood Judas very, very well because his son was what? Absalom was a type of Judas, right? Who? Judas, who became a guide. That's where Judas is identified as a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. A part in this ministry. That is very important. What's Yahweh's question? What part did Judas pay, pay, <laughs> what part did Judas play in the ministry? He played the part. He is the part of the counterfeit. There you go. Now, this man, what man? Here it is. Now, this man purchased a field. Judas owns a field. He's into real estate. Obvious question. There's two views on this. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of wrongdoing or iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all who dwelling in Jerusalem... So everybody in Jerusalem knew that is where Judas hung himself. Everybody knows that. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, or that is the field of blood. Okay? That's two very important things that were said in there. Judas is a guide and Judas bought a field. He owned the field that he hung himself over. And that's got to be reconciled with Matthew 27, 7. But for today, recognize that the thief owned the field. Obvious question? When did he buy the field? Why does he want the field? Obviously, he bought the field to what point? Hang himself over. Why this field? How much the field cost? Who did he buy the field from? Did he have a warranty deed? Have any... Have to pay a commission? Who did he pay the commission to? What was the interest rate? Did he have the down payment? Lots of questions here. How did he buy... When did he buy the field? Why this field? What happened on this field? It fits into what stage of the Antichrist's destructive ministry? It fits into the white horse stage. How long did he intend to hang himself? That becomes the question. Clearly, I, I'm going to make the case that it's a premeditated act. It's part of the plan. It's not. It's not happenstance. Now, I know quite a few scholars have put forward the, Jew, the, the, the view that he kind of bought it by proxy and that he threw the wages back to the Pharisees and the Pharisees gathered the money and they bought the field and Judas didn't buy the field. But I don't think the Bible says that. I think that, is, that view is, is not able to be defended. Quite a few scholars have put forward the opposite, that Judas was collecting money for the purpose of purchasing this field prior to his hanging. That's A.W. Pink. And before you take on A.W. Pink thinking that he's a sucker that you can just bat around the city Pay attention to that man. That is no shallow student of the Bible, A.W. Pink. I painted my house pink. Not on purpose. I just gave, they gave me pink carpet. It was free. Pink carpet, it was. You got pink carpet, then what do you got to do? Yeah, you paint your house pink to match the pink carpet. It's beautiful. You'll love it. Okay. Everybody's really mellow there. I mean, nice. Except for the German Shepherd, doesn't seem to bother her. 
Anyway, the predominant view, as I said, is that the Pharisees bought the field and Judas bought it indirectly. But I don't think that's true. I think Pink's view is correct. So I have a thief taking from the poor, Pink says. He's taking from the poor. And the purpose that he's stealing out of the money box is to buy this field. Now, that makes a little sense, but not a lot of sense. Does he need to steal from the poor to buy the field? Why would he do that? Does he... Can he get money any other way? Duh! He's incredibly powerful. So why would he want to steal money to buy the field from the poor? He's stealing money from the poor to buy the field. Why? What's his point? See, it's got great significance. Now you've got to figure out what the word thief is all about, what it means to God. Who was crucified with Christ? Two robbers, two criminals, two thieves were crucified. Robbers, criminals, better, because they were really two Israeli resistance fighters, if you've heard me say. They were opposing the Roman occupation of Israel. They probably were cohorts or under the auspices, under the control of their leader, Barabbas. That is why they wanted Barabbas freed, by the way. But they were not... Normal, because mere thieves are never crucified, resistance fighters crucified, but these were violent men crucified by the Romans as a warning, as a deterrent to others. And now we get back to the wicked man of Proverbs 6, I promise you that, don't have time, the man of Belial, that is used of Satan in Proverbs 6. That is a thief, a robber, a plunderer, a strong man. That is a sign to Satan. So Christ makes sure that you know that he has robbers on both sides of him, violent men that plunder. And Christ says that, that he eventually will enter into the strong man's place of plunder and will take the goods of the robber. He's going to rob the robber. That's what he says in Matthew 12. So... What is Judas and Satan taking? Why is Judas called a thief? What's he taking? What had the two crucified with Christ taken? That ultimately gets us to the floating axe head of 2 Kings 6, right? The floating axe head. This gets you back between, gets you here. Next week, don't have time today. Went as far as I could go. I promise on Easter I'll go shorter and have something more entertaining. Second Kings 6. This floating axe head comes up all the time because it deals with the word borrowed. You have to figure out the difference between a borrowed floating axe head because the axe head's down here, right? There it is down there. It's sunk to the bottom of the river of death. And it's borrowed and it's very precious. And if you don't bring it back to the guy that owns it, what's going to happen to you? It's going to hold you accountable and it's more valuable than your life. So what's going to happen to you? You're going to exchange your life for the fact that you lost the borrowed accent. Do you see what it's a picture of? Now you're going to have to compare that borrowed versus stolen. I have two kinds of people that have an axe head. What does the axe head actually portray? It portrays your soul spirit that comes from God. And what does God do? To get that axe head back that's lost in the sea of death and judgment, the Jordan River, he throws in the branch and the axe head floats to the top, right? He cuts down the branch, so that's a picture of Christ, into the sea of death and judgment and up comes your soul and you take it back. But you know that you borrowed it. Isn't yours? Thieves stealing. Two thieves are on the cross. They're both dying. One of them figures out that he's a thief and that he has only borrowed it. He wants to live. The other one stays a thief. Know the difference between borrow and steal. Next week, we'll try to get that figured out. Okay? It's the difference between understanding and being deceived. That's your clue. See you next week. Rise and be dismissed. Heart of Worship, page 37.